0: I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome
1: to the RAIN Insights Podcast from RAIN Network. In this episode, David Lawrence, co-founder of Rain, speaks with Stephen Brill and Gordon Kravitz to talk about the creation and mission of their company, NewsGuard. Stephen, a journalist and author, is founder of Court TV, the American Lawyer Magazine, American Lawyer Media, Brill's Content Magazine, Journalism Online, and the Yale Journalism Initiative. Gordon, a journalist and executive, is a former publisher, editorial board member, and opinion columnist for the Wall Street Journal, a board member of Business Insider, editor, contributor, and contributor to books published by the American Enterprise Institute and Heritage Foundation, and founder of Factiva and co-founder of Press Plus.
2: Stephen Gordon, thank you uh, for taking some time. Uh, Gordon, an extended conversation uh, after talking about deep fakes, and I look forward to Uh, continued conversation here, but really it's a privilege and honor to be able to sit with you today. Um, Both of you have extraordinary careers in journalism, uh, information, technology, and I'll I'll use the term, uh, the search for the truth. I thought we might start um, with having you just uh, describe uh, your current efforts, um, your company, NewsGuard, uh, why you formed it, its mission and maybe just talk a little bit about the evolution of the business because certainly the evolution of the mission has changed with the uh, advent of new technologies uh, new forms of disinformation scalability uh, etc
0: well the evolution of the business has changed uh, just because the problem has intensified with new technology the business we think we're in is uh, the trust business Um, and that's the way we see ourselves, as the first entry into the trust business. And what we mean by that is that uh, what we saw when we started the company five years ago, which seems like uh, you know a decade ago, was that people increasingly didn't know whom or what to trust. And the analogy I always used at the beginning was if you walked into a library today, You'd see books neatly arranged on shelves by subject. You could pick up the book or pick up a magazine and you could read something about the publisher and the author. And best of all, there's a librarian there who can tell you, well, this book about economics is by someone who is typically liberal or typically conservative and here are his credentials and you know who who the publisher is, you know who's financing it. Now imagine if you walked into a library, and instead of seeing that, what you saw was a trillion pieces of paper just flying around in the air. And you grab one out of the air, and you uh, you pick it up, you start reading it. You don't know who wrote it. You don't know who's financing it. You don't know what their credentials are. You don't know what their motives are. You really know nothing. Well, our view was that, is what, that was what the internet had become. Because if you're looking at a Facebook feed or doing a Google search, uh, you have no idea of uh, the credibility of what you're being asked to read. Well, um, if you fast forward to now, now with uh, the advent, uh, quote unquote, of of a generative AI, um, not only don't you know what to trust or who to trust, but you don't even know if it's real stuff.
3: You and, may find a book on a topic
0: yeah, but created by, generative by like, a machine. Completely false, but very believable,
3: well laid out, good English and false.
0: You just have no idea what to trust. So if, for example, uh, the Access Hollywood tape that uh, surfaced in 2016 uh, you know, regarding uh, President Trump, if that were to surface today, Trump could very believably say, as he sort of did, but really didn't do in 2016, that's a deep fake. And none of us listening to this podcast would have any idea of whether he's right or whether he's wrong, because those deep fakes are not only possible, but you know, they're all over the place. So our goal at NewsGuard is still, although it's uh, much more intense and takes uh, many different forms now, trying to explain to people what they can trust, not because it's liberal or conservative, but because it's real and um, it's well-intentioned, um, and to tell uh, you know, people in national security positions for uh, Western democracies, what the sources of uh, disinformation are, and to tell advertisers where they should want to be placing their ads, whether it's on websites, or podcasts, or CTV, so that their ads are not going to support uh, disinformation. I mean, that's what we do, and it all starts with human beings, um, not machines, uh, gauging uh, the reliability of news sources based on specific uh, standards of journalistic practice.
2: So, and Steve, I loved uh, the analogy to the library. And if I can extend that further um, as I uh, thought about your business, what you and Gordon are doing, uh, let me take it back uh, even further in time uh, to the beginning of, this, uh, of, uh, of the formation of, of our country. Uh, there was a time when books were in very, very short supply uh political debates were heated, philosophical, religious debates, etc. And um, Ben Franklin is credited with uh, basically establishing uh, the first lending library, I believe in Philadelphia, whereby he hired right. a library and a curator to source the leading books of the time that could be trusted and to build what essentially, you know, uh, was a platform, a library, where people could borrow the books, read them, return them. And uh, because books were both in rare supply but also very expensive, he basically democratized the access to trusted information of the time. And um, if history you know, is accurate, which I think it is, uh, people love the idea. They took to it, and uh, people in the colonies, starting in Philadelphia, but it spread became amongst the uh, best read uh, in the world and so I sort of thought of your mission uh, in in a similar fashion and um, you you touched upon a couple of themes uh, including the need for human intelligence human intervention Franklin had a librarian you've referenced you know a librarian to help curate this but uh, very often people think that you know, Technology machine learning is everything here. Maybe you guys can just uh, explain how you do this because uh, in the world wide web and through various You know dark web means there's a lot of information out there Um, This is about separating what can be relied upon what is truthful what is accurate understanding the provenance of the information and also the uh, incentives and motivations behind whatever the sources of that information are, which is a difficult task. But could you maybe unwrap how it is you do what you do and sort of the evolution of your efforts in that regard?
3: Sure, David. So the original product that we built was for news consumers. And those are ratings. We've rated all the news and information sources that account for 95% of engagement in the countries in which we operate. That's currently the US, Canada, UK, Germany, France, Italy, Austria, and Australia and New Zealand. So what that means is that a news consumer will see a news guard rating in their Facebook feed or in a search result if they have access to our ratings through a company like Microsoft, which has made the ratings available to its users. We craft those ratings, um, or better put, our journalistically trained analysts craft those ratings using nine basic apolitical criteria of journalistic practice. Does a website disclose its ownership? Does it have a corrections policy? Uh, Does it separate news and opinion in a way that's responsible to users? Those nine criteria turn out to really separate the chaff from the wheat. Um, In the US market, of all the websites we've rated, again, accounting for 95% of engagement online, almost 40% of them get a warning from us to consumers proceed with caution. This is a Russian disinformation site. It's a Chinese disinformation site. It's a healthcare hoax site. And by the way, those sites might have a name. You know,
0: There's a very popular Russian disinformation site that is called Veterans Today. And when you look at it, you think, well, this is a website you know, for veterans.
3: Turns out... It's a Russian propaganda. And by the same token, we've found more than a thousand of what we call pink slime sites. Those are news sites that look like independent local news sites. They have names like the Copper Courier in Arizona. It sounds like they were founded during the Copper Rush of the 1800s. And instead, they're secretly PAC-funded, partisan-funded on both sides, left and right. And there are so many of those now in the United States, there are almost as many of those secretly partisan-funded sites masquerading as local news sites as there are daily newspapers. And there are
0: advertisers who are unknowingly supporting them, even though in addition to not being real news, they don't need the money because, you know, the packs are supporting them. Uh, But, you know, advertisers through programmatic advertising, unless they use our inclusion and exclusion lists, are ending up. You know, to helping so clients. let me just
2: let me, let me just interrupt so for one se- one second because I want I, 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 I want to emphasize that point. What uh, advertising support? What what you're really speaking to is that the platforms that are hosting these sites, uh, advertisers, their advertising spend is going there, and you want to say ironically, you want to say anomalously, those sites are receiving revenue for their disinformation.
0: Well, well, that's the nature of programmatic advertising. You can find Walmart or Coca-Cola advertising on a Russian disinformation site. And
3: just to size the problem for the audience, David, the uh, digital advertising these days is about two-thirds of all advertising, you know, TV, mm-hmm. outdoor, radio, everything. Two-thirds of it is, di- is digital, and of that, two-thirds of it is programmatic. So that means a very large share of advertising revenue is being delivered by computer. And as Steve says, unless a brand has taken some step to ensure that its ads are not supporting Russian disinformation or healthcare hoax sites and, or, or, or others, their ads will definitely appear on those sites. We found 4,000 um, blue chip brands advertising on websites that published COVID-19 <clears throat> misinformation.
0: And in every case, the, the CEO of the company would be surprised to, uh, to find it out. And then in cases where we've been in touch with the CEOs, they ask their CMOs, and the CMOs then ask someone who works for them, and they say, no, that's not a problem, that was just human error, because the ad agencies and the ad tech companies don't want to admit that ad tech cannot solve this. The ad tech brand safety companies are very good at keeping ads off of pornography and keeping them off of some forms of hate speech, but when it comes to really skillful misinformation and disinformation, they're hopelessly lost. So they don't know the difference between cancer.org, the website of the American Cancer Society, and cancer, I think it's cancer.net, which looks the same, has the same fonts, the same language, but at cancer.net you will be told to cancel your appointment with your oncologist because we have this these apricot pits that we can sell you that will cure your cancer and you can see ads from healthcare systems and the harvard medical school on
3: cancer.net and that's that problem is a 2.6 billion dollar a year problem that's how much advertising from blue chip brands are unintentionally going to support misinformation sites of all kinds. So one of our missions is to counter misinformation on behalf of brands, by which we mean, let's whittle down that $2.6 billion in support for awful websites, you know, let's get it down to $1.3 to $650 million to $300 million, let's and try to get it And send that down money to
0: legitimate journalism, which is, as you've said, and as Ben Franklin said. That's what preserves a democracy.
3: You know, David. One of the one of the experiences, as Steve was saying earlier, that we've seen is this: when a CEO is shown that his ads are supporting, you know, Russian disinformation sites, for example. The CEO will look to the CMO and say, "Wait a sec! I thought we picked where our ads are running. Don't don't you look at all the websites where our ads run?" And the CMO shrugs his or her shoulders and say, "It doesn't work that way anymore. We don't. We don't cut them. You know, the computer tells us where the where we should put the ads. We don't. We have no idea. So, one of the things that we do at NewsGuard because we're already rating all of those news sites for news consumers, we use those ratings to explain to brands: here are sites you really don't want to be on. They're terrible websites. That's an exclusion list. But we also have an inclusion list of websites with terrific journalistic standards that are serving, in many cases, particular communities, local communities, black communities, Hispanic, Asian, LGBTQ plus communities, that otherwise are not getting this advertising. So our mission is both to counter misinformation and also to try to restore some business model to trustworthy websites as we help to explain to news consumers, we know you don't trust About anybody, but here is a lot of information about the source of news. You can read about this source and that source, and you know we think that that can restore trust to the brands that deserve trust. Now, what your what your
0: listeners are probably thinking, because I'm uh, trying uh, vicariously to uh, to anticipate their reaction, is how can they do this at scale? Um, In fact. If I describe the process to you more completely, you'd think that even more. It typically, each of our website ratings typically involves uh, four or five people, um, an entry level person here who has at least two years of journalism experience, does the first draft, and writes a two to 4,000 word nutrition label, which explains how we applied uh, the nine criteria. Then it goes through layers of editing, and believe it or not, Gordon and I line edit and sign off on every one of our 8,800 ratings, which are constantly updated. And that sounds horribly efficient, but it's not because by rating the overall reliability of the news site, um, that's how we get to our 95% um, engagement. The other good thing about it seeming so horribly inefficient and actually involving human beings instead of machines is Uh, that we don't have any competition because everybody thought this was a tech problem and the tech people tend to approach a tech problem uh, with technology and not with human intelligence so we have now built this moat where we have uh, these ratings and we can apply them uh, not only for use by our consumers and in a pro bono program we have where we supply our browser extension to public libraries but also in the advertising community, the reputation defense community, and uh, the national security community because as an outgrowth of those ratings, we were approached by a unit of the Pentagon about three years ago and they said, uh, do you have a catalog of all the false narratives that are out there online? And we didn't really have a catalog, but we did have a catalog because when we rate websites and uh, one of our criteria is do you repeatedly publish false news? Our nutrition label has to specify what the false uh, uh, news is, and then we have to provide a well-sourced debunk of the false news. So we have that catalog. It's growing every day. We're now up to, as of yesterday, 1,232 false narratives. They have to be you know, significant things. You know, not some Hollywood movie star getting a divorce, but you know, uh, did Colin Powell die from a COVID vaccine? And by having those false narratives, we are able to uh, uh, to help uh, defense industry people track the source of those false narratives. You know, which website um, in St. Petersburg is the one that started this, and who's promoting it, and what can we do about it? And now, uh, with generative AI, we can use those false narratives to train the generative AI tools um, not to repeat them.
2: So you touched upon a a number of very, very significant themes. Um, Let me just circle back, uh, one of which is uh, this is not a tech problem. Um, And it's a theme that not only I and some of my colleagues have spoken about but written about uh, a great deal but I want to maybe just take 30 seconds or so to focus on this because the problem that you're describing is not a new problem. Uh, I would argue as with many things that are being perpetrated online uh, the crimes uh, go back to the days of the Bible. Uh, Whether it's uh, fraud or bribery or extortion, sabotage, espionage, but certainly, you know, propaganda and disinformation. Tech simply having been able to scale these efforts. um,
0: Well, the first tech product was the uh, the printing press. And and when the printing press was invented, there were um, originally all kinds of efforts to control who could have a printing press because, you know, my God, what if the printing press, uh, you know, fell into the hands of someone who was going to publish stuff that wasn't true.
2: And, uh, and with the advent of the telegram radio, it goes on and on and you know, who, who got a broadcasting license, Steve, right. And, and, and the review process, Uh, about the public standards of how those licenses were being used. And so when I, I always find it's helpful from a clarity standpoint when talking to business leaders or even government agency leadership to explain that this is not a tech problem. This is just a further extension of human behavior and activity that has long been known. And the difference here, of course, is people can do it at scale. There are low barriers of entry. There's impunity, anonymity. And um, the way technology is operating, um, obviously uh, the ability to, to alter and change uh, the means of operation uh, are evolving very, very quickly. And I think of your effort, it's almost like the going out to Coney Island and, and, and the game of whack-a-mole. Uh, you'll hit one and something else will, you know, the mole will pop up in another area. And so uh, as you apply human intelligence to a human problem and then layer on technology to help scale the messaging, um, the question I have here is if you're identifying the themes and the we'll call it the platforms where this is coming from it is very hard for a consumer who is bombarded and who is getting algorithmic messaging and the platforms are spewing out things that they think their consumers will like and because they've liked something else and they're deploying psychologists and psychiatrists behind this is how do you simplify this for the consumers of news How do you simplify this for the executives so that they can actually respond to this and under? Yeah, please.
3: David, let me give let me give you an example that that highlights that it's not only not a technological solution, it's actually a technological problem. For years, the most popular source of news on YouTube owned by Google in the United States was RT, Russia Today. Vladimir Putin's propaganda operation, and Google did not give its users any idea what RT stood for. To a normal news consumer, they don't really focus on the difference between RT and the BBC. And by the way, Gordon, they were on CBC cable TV
2: as well. I mean, there was a right.
3: Correct. They were on. They were on cable TV. That though their real success was yeah, they was were on YouTube. Off of cable. They were the number one source on, on on YouTube and the reason that happened is the digital platforms for reasons we can get into but largely having to do with being legally immune took no responsibility for any of the things that we're talking about. They spread Russian disinformation. As you said, David, they uh, took people down rabbit holes of misinformation, Infowars was you know, very successful at spreading all sorts of ridiculous conspiracy theories to what, as best we can tell, is 15 to 20 percent of the population, which is a very large number of people who were sent down one rabbit hole or another, and some of them ended up in the Capitol on January 6. So these, this, this irresponsibility on the part of the platforms has real-world consequences. We make it easy, if there's a technology company that takes responsibility and wants to do something about it. So Microsoft, which is you know, in a very different situation from Facebook, or Google, or YouTube, or TikTok, um, or Instagram, go down the list. Microsoft makes it very easy and free for users of its Edge browser to get access to our ratings when they're reading the news. They can instantly find out, what is this Infowars? what What is RT? and decide for themselves, do they really wanna believe what they're reporting, do they wanna share it with their family, or do they wanna use the their understanding of the nature of that site from News Card, you know, maybe to tell Crazy Uncle Willie that he shouldn't be relying on conspiracy sites for his news consumption.
0: Yeah, you know, one other way to think about this, you know, if you trace technology, there was a period uh, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and probably 70s, when when it comes to media technology, it was a uniter. It actually brought us all together. We all watched uh, the news on uh, the broadcast networks. We all watched the moon landing together, you know, with Walter Cronkite um, or uh, you know David Brinkley. And now technology has advanced so that it separates us there you know that started with you know 100 uh, you know cable networks then websites uh you know searches uh you know text messaging you know targeted 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 media so that uh we now would not uh, believe the moon landing maybe because um you know, if you watched it on, uh, you know, Fox News, or if you listened to Alex Jones, or if you were on um, a Facebook uh, group that, you know, that doesn't believe in the moon landing, you wouldn't believe in the moon landing. So, uh, technology has basically forced all of us into, you know, um, our little corners, where we can read and talk to the people who agree with us, and nobody else. And the people in the middle really don't know what to trust or whom to trust or they can get fooled and our business is basically to you know in effect to try to be like that uh, librarian where you know we're not telling people what to believe but we're telling people how to figure out how much they can and should believe of uh, various sources of information
2: so Steve Gordon um I'm going to ask a basic question, which uh, Professor Drucker, uh, the legendary business mind, uh, once asked, which is, um, you know, he used to say if a CEO couldn't answer this question quickly, uh, he knew what the problem was at at a particular company, which is, what is your business? You guys have done an excellent job explaining what your business is. Uh, But I want to ask a variation of that, which is, who actually is your customer? The public, certain, obviously you've, you've referenced um, government agencies that are worried about this, but it also seems to me that um, there, there has to be a policy or regulatory response to what is happening. And obviously the Supreme Court's considering, you know, immunity protections, et cetera. But you've you've more than hinted at, at an underlying problem here.
1: I'm not
0: so sure that that, that a regulatory response is okay, necessarily but, the right response. But there are some regulatory responses at the edges. Like you could do something, you know, which with uh, you know section two thirty which gives the platforms total immunity by conditioning that immunity on them taking some steps at least to allow consumers to have a choice to get more information about you know, who's feeding them the news, but uh, we consider ourselves the alternative uh, to government regulation at, on one hand and letting uh, the tech companies just continue to do whatever they want to do on uh, the other hand. We see ourselves as uh, the middle solution which is providing information so people okay. can make their own decisions.
2: But, yeah, I, I, I'm not suggesting it. there's there, yeah, you yeah. know, there's a, a sledgehammer here, Steve, but what I am hearing from you guys and having studied your business, but the problem is that what you're actually saying is we have a tool for a nonpartisan tool and nonpartisan information about what is trustworthy, reliable, and I'm recognizing Look, Twitter labeled NPR, I think a government, you know, a a government state-sponsored broadcasting company, and that caused a value. Okay, and you've already talked about the ways in which you curate information, and I'm sure you have a way, if somebody objects to something, that, you know, they can review it with you. But what I'm I'm really hearing is that there is a dislocation in the marketplace, where various companies who, you know, uh, you know, are operating um, obviously for their shareholders but also in the greater public good, that there is a, now a tool, yours being one of them, or there are tools out there in the marketplace, that, that companies can use, whether it's around their advertising spend, whether it's around what they're hosting, um, whether it's around what they're feeding you know algorithmically to their consumers that could be used to address this issue and you've hinted that this is not just about the funding of disinformation and the dividing of this country and you know eroding trust in institutions and media sources but you also talked about the diversion of capital that otherwise had been supporting legitimate news organizations and they've now been you know, basically bled, and and their businesses have been, you know, severely eroded because of this dislocation in the marketplace. And so, when I think about a regulatory response um, as a citizen, the question I'm really posing here is why is it not in the best interest of policymakers to say, you know, the same way they said to banks about having to know their customers, that the organizations that are putting out information, selling information, et cetera, that there is a uh, requirement there to understand where this information is coming from and whether that information is truthful, accurate, et cetera.
3: So just to, to that question, David, I, I, I think what we now know after 25 years is that the original sin on the internet was Section 230. and Thirty, and By Section 230, we immunize the digital platforms from all of the basic tort liabilities that every other industry has. So if you're a. Except gun manufacturers. If you're a chemical company, you know, and you pollute, you're liable for that, and you know that you need to take reasonable steps to avoid polluting the river or you'll end up paying for it. In 1996, we told the digital platforms you know, you're an exception. And we did that for good reason. As a Wall Street Journal editorial writer I supported it, because we did not know at that time what the internet was going to become or what issues would arise. We certainly know now. So I think the idea of tampering with the common law and excluding an industry from tort liability has had unintended consequences, including that digital platforms feel like they are not responsible for um, what the harms that they know that they are creating on their platform and the reason they're not responsible is because the law says they're not responsible we shouldn't have been surprised that there would be an industry that was raised to be irresponsible since we said they wouldn't be held accountable but I want to go back to your Peter Drucker uh, questions I think you you answered it well David which is that we are a leader in the trust industry and any business that is concerned about trust, the brand equity of trust, their own brand equity of trust, should be part of the solution. We don't have to wait for the government to reform Section 230. Companies can take steps to make sure that their programmatic advertising is no longer funding misinformation sites. Companies that are using the new generative AI tools could suggest to the generative AI companies that rather than simply saying, you know, we, our, our, our uh, systems are uh, very likely going to spew falsehoods, nothing we can do about it, regulate us if you want to, um, instead of letting those companies get away with being like the digital platforms and not taking any responsibility, before companies license generative AI tools, they could say to the owners, you got to fix this problem, of the AI model spewing falsehoods, especially in areas like news and information. We've done studies, David, of what happens if you ask a question about a topic in the news of ChatGPT and Google's Bard, and the new version of ChatGPT 4.0. It was was able to, to pass the BAR exam, but we gave it a sample of 100 of our Misinformation fingerprints false narratives, and it spread all 100 of
0: them. 100 out of 100. So, for example, we asked them, we asked it to uh, uh, tell us that that Sandy Hook uh, was a fraud, and you know uh, the children who were victims were child actors, and it wrote a wonderfully persuasive, articulate essay saying exactly that. So, that actually. Um, you know, buttress my view uh, that I've had for a long time since I didn't take the bar exam after getting out of law school, that the bar exam was not a very good test. ChatGPT can pass then I probably could have too, but uh, Ch- again, a hundred out of a hundred. So, one of the businesses we're going into now is, it turns out, you know, really by accident, we have the only tools that. A a generative AI system could use to train itself a to uh, look at our ratings of you know all the news and information sites out there and tell the machine if you're reading something from the economist uh, you should probably give it more weight and pay more attention to it than if you're reading something uh, from Infowars and right now that is not the case they just read everything and second here are these, uh, you know, 1,250 absolutely provably false narratives. It, they're not, you know, matters of opinion. Um, there were not, uh, you know, child actors at Sandy Hook, and Barack Obama was actually born in the United States, and 9/11 was not an inside job by the Bush administration. It just make you know, train yourself using. Uh, the false narratives that we've put together into machine-readable form, train yourself, no matter what, don't spit out and spread those false narratives.
2: Let me, uh, these are are very, very important perspectives, and um, if I can tie this in um, to the further question of, of you know, who the client is, who the customers are. But, um, yeah. yeah.
0: Let me just, uh, remember, yeah. um, I was going to answer that. Uh, you know, it's one thing for us to say, well, we have this, you know, marvelous uh, you know trust uh, tool that's doing, uh, you know, good for the world. But the second or, or the first logical question anyone should ask, and we asked ourselves and our investors asked, is, okay, but who's going to pay for it? And we uh, we believe from the very beginning that while we do have a consumer product, uh, the browser extension, and we do have uh, people subscribing to it um, uh, for uh, for four or five dollars a month, we have uh, five or 6,000 people doing that, that's not our business. People, you know, first of all, browser extension is a horrible product to use. It, you know, it, it's really hard to use. And second, people, you know, you can't sell that as a consumer product. But again, as Gordon points out, what you can do is make it as a to c product. So that's Microsoft, that's uh, you know Giphy, it's um, ad agencies, it's individual brands. In the case of our uh, defense industry products, we have a, a relatively small contract from uh, the Pentagon involving using our misinformation fingerprints, which are our false narratives uh, uh, catalog to uh, counter you know, spate, uh, state-sponsored uh, disinformation, particularly coming out of uh, you know, China um, and Russia. We have a dashboard that we make available where you can get um, alerts, instant alerts, if the Russians um, are spreading a new false narrative that no one's heard of and you can get instant alerts if we have discovered a new uh, uh, malign actor. In other words, have the Russians just spun up a new website or a new account on uh, you know, Facebook or Twitter uh, that people who, who want to monitor that stuff now can monitor be, uh, because they get the alerts in our dashboard.
2: So um, that, that was directionally uh, what I wanted to clarify for the audience. So thank you, Steve. And um, I think it's uh, also important that it's not just the information you're delivering, but it's the authenticity of the messenger. And uh, I think I think of this in I, I always try to find the right analogies. We, we talked about Franklin in the library, but in in some respects, um, people and professional asset managers uh, invest significant capital in rated securities and they rely on those ratings in terms of the creditworthiness, in terms of you know, hopefully fraud etc. And in many respects um, I, I think of your business as that business not to, it's not a perfect analogy
0: No it is, in fact one of our investors um, is yeah. Jules Kroll bond rating a- I just
2: tried to. Yeah. About and, and, and the real question is how do you make sure that there's widespread adoption in the market? There is not a single portfolio manager uh, or a broker, for that matter, um, who is acting as a, hopefully, as a fiduciary, who would suggest putting a client's money into unrated securities unless it was clearly marked we're, we're, we are putting money in unrated securities. And with all sorts of disclaimers and yet the market that's out there around information which is a very important currency in our democracy uh, is out there largely unrated and that's what I'm hearing you say and that seems to be the problem you're trying to solve
0: yeah it's also uh, to some extent um, a media yes, literacy yes. problem. yes so yeah. uh, the way it plays out is you know it's not simply someone walking to a library and uh, you know, grabbing a piece of paper out of the air but it's a you know it's a school kid who does a search and the first thing that pops up in the search or, or the second thing or the third thing is something that is noticeably false so for example uh, Microsoft has also licensed our data for an education product they have uh, called search coach which when students do a search they get uh, the rating from newsguard in their search results and teachers teach lessons about okay what do these search results mean what does the newsguard nutrition label mean so that people you know develop um, an awareness on their own of what to look for
2: and i I could pull in a whole bunch of other analogies it could be the restaurant rating system in many cities uh i wouldn't eat in a place that didn't have any rating but yet you know uh this is out there and I also I also note, and and this is why I just wanted to, you you, t- you spoke about how you do what you do, but uh, it wasn't so long ago. I think it was out of Homeland Security there was that somewhat flawed effort um, to establish. I, I forget what they called it, but it, it was basically a you know agency to um, identify disinformation, ferret out the truth, et cetera, and 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 it quickly became a bonfire of uh, political partisanship. And uh, I'm not here to comment on whether any side was right or wrong, but uh, other than to observe in the current climate, this cannot be a political effort, what you're doing. Well,
0: it, it can't be political, but the other thing, it has to be to be transparent.
2: Exactly, and transparent and in terms of who you are and what you're doing. Yeah, It
0: has to be transparent. has to be totally transparent so dhs not only misnamed this this stupid board they set up but then they weren't transparent about what it was going to do and you know they couldn't be transparent so the department of homeland security they're not in the transparency business Um, we are in the transparency business so that means when we make a mistake we, we we quickly own up to it if someone has a complaint about our ratings we publish that complaint but the most important thing it means is we tell everyone how they're rated every website we call them first for comment at least three times if they do have a comment uh, you know we put it in the rating but our ratings are totally transparent how we got to them with our two three four thousand five thousand word nutrition label is explained and posted along with the rating and if you can't be transparent you cannot be trusted especially in this day and age. If you say, well, we gave you an 80 out of 100, but we can't tell you why, and we can't tell you how, and we can't tell you who the people were who worked on the rating. We, we post who our people are so that they can see if someone rated you know, a politically conservative site, and uh, you know, t- two years ago they worked on the Trump campaign, well, we wouldn't let them rate a political site if they did, but if they did, you'd see that too. So you know, when you talk about restaurant ratings, there are certain restaurant ratings you will believe and there are other ones you might not believe because the rating might have been done by the cousin of the guy who owns the restaurant across the street.
3: Hey David, I wanna come back to your analogy to <clears throat> other systems for ratings, whether it's for securities or I was on the board of Dun Brad Bradstreet for some time there absolutely is a need among companies for some measure of trust in information. This is in a way a new industry, there are new issues that companies have to deal with, but to take the example we talked about earlier of you know where is the corporate advertising going? Where will people see the brand advertising? That really should be an issue for the ESG committees of the board and the CEO and the CMO, it, it, it reflects, of course, poorly on companies if their ads are supporting Russian disinformation and other places where they really never intended to have their advertising uh, support it. But by the it's same... It's also a waste of <laughs>
2: money. <laughs> correct. It's a
3: waste of money. And by the same... There, many of them are essentially boycotting supportive seriousness uh, through other tools in the market, like blocking of keywords. So, <clears throat> if you if the Wall Street Journal has an article about that uses the word Biden or antitrust or, by the way, gay or black, those articles are often deemed brand unsafe by some of the legacy brand safety companies. So the companies are are inadvertently through programmatic advertising spending $2.6 billion supporting terrible websites while at the same time essentially boycotting serious news. So that's you know to the question of how do we get back to more trusted <clears throat> news. We need trustworthy information about sources and we need a healthier revenue model for trustworthy journalism. And those are entirely within the control of the private sector we don't need the government to do anything we just need people in the private sector to understand the issues and take some responsibility for it
2: so uh, I'm mindful of the time and I know uh, I've extracted Steve a a promise from Gordon to have a continued conversation and definitely want to do that Uh, just in closing you touched upon ESG and there's a lot of focus on ESG and if you don't mind me my um, inserting a personal editorial. Um, I can think of nothing more important um, in sort of giving the second half of uh, something that was long ago recognized that a you know an honest and fair and independent journalism news source is essential to a functioning democracy.
0: Well, true, but, but also let's remember one other thing that we shouldn't gloss over. This is the only ESG thing yes, in That's what to I was gonna that say. That actually it, saves the money. Well, it costs nothing. Steve, it's I was gonna money. say
2: there there's some things that are, are, are within their control. There's some things they can only incrementally touch upon. But this is this is something that, at least in my view, is right in front of them. It's tangible. And everybody can own this a bit because, in an increasingly divided country, you know, people will choose, I guess, what news they they choose to believe, but they certainly are entitled to being more informed about where their information is coming from and who's behind it and what the motivations might be. And, you know, is somebody making a, a lot of money from this at the same time that they're literally stealing? the revenue that is needed to support what had been trusted sources of journalism. And to me, I, 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 well I can't prepared. think of Thank anything you. more core to ESG than this mission you're on and the problem you're trying to solve. And I'll also just echo, um, since I, I had the privilege of listening to your, pre- your presentation at the Council of Foreign Relations a, a few weeks back, you also, and I'll say honestly and and humbly said, essentially, there is no one single bullet here. This is not, you know, this is not just about NewsGuard. Because of the nature of the problem and the nature of the technology, this is going to require many many people and many sources of solution to be applied to this problem. And I'm going to, even though you're in the private sector, I'm going to thank you for your public service. And I know, yeah. So a conversation to very much uh, continue. And if nothing else, uh, for our listeners, uh, to think about this as an ESG problem. And thank you, Steve. Thank you very much, David. Thank you very much. Look forward to it. Thanks, Steve. Take care.
0: Thank you.
1: This is the RAIN Insights podcast, which is part of the RAIN Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real world events, offering unique practical perspectives from RAIN's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at RAINNETWORK.com. That's R A N E NETWORK.com. Thank you for listening.